0: Hello, and welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. On BTS Podcast, I talk to people about the the behind-the-scenes of what they do. My apologies to frequent listeners about the big gap between episodes. This was recorded during all of the COVID-19, just everything that's been going on. And at the start of the shutdown, I was very motivated and released a couple episodes and then that just disappeared and so here I am now in May and I have finally mustered up the energy to release an episode. My apologies in advance about the mediocre audio quality for this episode. I tried a new thing on Zoom. It did not go so well, so Michael sounds good, and I sound not great. I tried to edit out a lot of just, like, the glitchiness and the delay. Uh, I have a hunch that Zoom was very congested, which, uh, and, like, Probably they were not prepared for that. So I don't know, but there was definitely some delay. So hopefully it is not too rough to listen to. Michael shares a lot of really great information and encouraging thoughts and ideas around his career. He has been in the music industry for quite some time. We went to high school together and have remained friends since, and he is a really terrific person. So he spent the first 10 years of his career as a trance artist, specifically progressive trance. And so we talk about his experience during a time when the industry pivoted toward uplifting trance, what that was like for him, how he's adjusted. He's gotten support from Paul Van Dyke, Armin Van Buren, Tiesto, we talk about just a lot. He is someone who's a four on the Enneagram, so it was hard for him to learn how to not get too consumed with negative comments or take the positive ones too seriously. His advice is be competent in who you are and do what's true to you, which is something I think we hear from artists all the time. And I think it's really easy to boil down to just that quick sentence, but hearing him talk about it and be vulnerable about it and hear how it's sort of an ongoing journey for him, I think can be really, really helpful in trusting your own tuition and the compulsion to create he also very kindly gives me advice for my own band breakfast tacos and our releases which uh is one of the other reasons that this took a while to get out is because i've been working on pr around those releases and all of our marketing so obviously i would love if you checked out my band it's fun we have two songs out you can find us on all listening platforms just look up breakfast tacos and you should be able to find us if you have trouble finding us look up breakfast tacos Lene cook you should be able to find it better that way. So anyways, please do enjoy this episode. I had so much fun. If you're an artist, you should definitely also listen because he does give great advice for releases. And I link to the Verge article with Charlie XCX that he mentions. So if you want to read it, just go into the description of this episode and in the meantime, I would absolutely love if you used my promo code for Instacart. I know a lot of us are having groceries delivered. I certainly have been. I have been for years. It has been great for me. In times like this, when it's risky to be out at the grocery store, please do tip your Instacart delivery and your, all your delivery people very well. And by very well, I mean at least 20%. They are out there having to socially distance and wear masks and all of that and, um, Yeah, it's not easy, it's not fun. You can use LCook5130 to save. And should you happen to want to travel anytime soon, if you're feeling wild or if you are booking in advance, please do use my promo code for Hotel Tonight. I am a huge, huge fan. You can use LCook61 and you will save on your listing and it will help me save on my future hotel booking someday when it feels reasonable to travel thank you so much please do subscribe rate review it helps the podcast a lot per several listeners requests i am working on getting all episodes up on youtube and i didn't create a new channel you can just find it on my channel look up Lene cook on youtube and subscribe and episodes will be there soundcloud and all of the regular listening platforms for podcasts thank you and i hope you enjoyed the episode
1: Hey, welcome to BTS Podcast. This is your host, Lene Cook. And today I have on my friend, Michael Badal. The audio might be a little bit squishy just because we are recording via Zoom, which is not something I do that often, but COVID-19, 2020. So here we are. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Michael and I have known each other since high school and he is a musician. And, you know, I was going to say he's like a producer DJ, but Mike, is that still accurate?
2: Yeah, it is. It's Except I don't gig as much anymore. I'm heavily on the production side and musicianship side these days.
1: Cool. And when you say musicianship, what do you mean by that?
2: I, uh, I still play keyboards, still play drums. I sometimes guest on other people's recordings, like uh, very, very solemnly, but heavily on the producer side.
1: Okay, cool. And so you you've been doing this for a while like since we were in high school and maybe even earlier and then according to the internet tiesto like put you on when we were seniors in high school is that correct
2: yeah it is um like in our senior year back in like oh seven um he randomly got my uh got my song colors off of beatport and he started playing it uh, literally all over his tour uh, and he got it on the radio and uh, his management reached out to me and was like, Hey, do you have any more stuff? And pretty much there was like a period of time. I want to say a couple years where like basically from his in search of sunrise, volume six era, all the way to kaleidoscope. Like I could have pretty much sent him anything and he was really supportive and played it out. So he really helped with like the start of my career.
1: That's, super wild and random and that was like that was the same year that was my first Coachella and he was headlining and I I think that I mean you're you've always been pretty quiet uh when we were growing up about making music like I think everyone knew that you made music because it's just such a part of who you are but I didn't even realize all of that I think until I was working in entertainment a little bit more and then it, like things would come up in conversation that I was like wait what that's crazy. <laughs> and I had no idea that you were you were like touring the way that you were touring and stuff like that. Um at what point in your career did you start navigating like managers and agents?
2: Honestly, uh, within the last two or three years. Um so I I've been self-managed since the start of my career up until um a couple of years ago, I want to say 2016. Um, i was working with a gentleman um for that year and then it wasn't it wasn't just wasn't a good fit so we kind of parted we parted ways very amicably and uh now i'm managed by uh one of my close friends that i've known for about 10 years who's got more of like an entrepreneurial brain um he's a go-getter uh very great with uh with interpersonal relationships and things like that um so he's managing me now Oh,
1: that's awesome. Yeah. Um. And so in, I mean, that's a very long time self-managing. Yeah. What do you recommend to artists who are like, what are some tools and systems and things that you developed while self-managing that you think other independent artists could benefit from?
2: Yeah. Um. So uh, at least in the dance music realm, what I was doing uh, back in the day, once, uh, once I had that chance play from uh, from Tiesto, but even before that, I was getting played by by um, guys in the trance world a bunch, and that was because of the label that I was with. They were sending out promos and things like that. So once I got my first couple plays on the radio and things like that, uh, it became really easy for me to reach out to other A-list talent and uh basically ask for their support and then from that you're basically developing um uh, your own close relationships with them and when they come to town you go and hang out and things like that um but beyond that uh i think the landscape has changed a bit i think that's a little more difficult to do these days these days uh, i would recommend believe it or not linkedin figuring out who's who uh who is working in these artists' camps and things like that and try to uh, develop an organic relationship rather than just hitting them with a, hey, can you do this for me? Hey, can you do that for me? That kind of thing.
1: And so do you even recommend LinkedIn over something like Instagram or Twitter?
2: Uh, yeah, mostly because I haven't had much success with it, but I think that's just my personal experience because I've, I've heard of many people having success just literally sliding in an artist's DM and by chance that artist clicks on your link and likes what you like and starts a conversation. Um, but uh, generally LinkedIn has been more um, successful for me
1: that is wild i you are the first person in music that i have heard recommend that at all so that is very fascinating and i wonder if that is sort of more specific to like your genre because i don't imagine that there's a lot of people across like the synth pop or hip-hop or like other sort of uh different industries that are
2: as like active on linkedin Oh, you're kidding. Cause I, I guess I'm I'm approaching it from a, like a self-management standpoint. Like um when I wanted to get a hold of like let's say I wanted to collaborate with a vocalist and um I want to get a hold of her. Granted, you're not gonna be able to get a hold of them uh, directly unless, like you said, you you manage to to catch them on social media, but generally I would approach them through their managers. Um, just oh. like if somebody wanted to work with me they would approach me through their through their manager so I would basically find out like who's their A&R at their label who is their management um that kind of thing and approach them through the proper channels and when you submit your stuff you're obviously giving your a little brief about me so if they're interested to even look at your material um your cold open <laughs> is very important. <laughs> totally
1: that makes a lot more sense yeah i i now see what you're saying and yeah i could totally see that being the best way to get a hold of management because definitely management is more likely to be looking at their linkedin than want to hear from random people on instagram yeah that makes a ton of sense i'm glad you elaborated because
2: yeah. i was i was very confused clearly yeah. you're like wait you hit up artists on linkedin <laughs> yeah, because I
1: was like, I don't know
2: a single artist that's like on LinkedIn,
1: unless they like also have a nine to five that they're sort of like keeping separate from their artist career.
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah, just from like a self-management kind of thing, uh, trying to build these connections and and grow my network. That was the best way to do it. It was through yeah. uh, through LinkedIn and making those business contacts.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. That's very helpful. Thank you. And so you ha- you started touring, you know, when you were pretty young. And yeah. you're touring less these days. But, w- like, what sort of, um, like, touring is really exhausting. And then I think a lot of people have a really hard time when they get home from being on tour. What are some lessons yeah. that you learned about, like, touring and, like, maintaining your, your wellness and uh, just sort of, like, you know not unraveling
2: yeah the last tour that i did that was like actually it, it, well what's funny is a lot of people say they're on tour and it's really like, like they're playing a show every other weekend or like maybe one weekend a month but the last tour i did where it was like successive uh dates back to back to back was in support of my debut album back in like 2015 mm-hmm. and i was not uh prepared for that on the wellness uh, spectrum like I didn't get hardly any sleep. Um, I ate horribly because like I was visiting all these cities that like I've always wanted to visit. So like I went to Austin and ate a ton of barbecue and Tex-Mex. And like I went to San Francisco and ate a bunch of seafood. And um, Chicago, I ate so much pizza, so much. like It was all bad. So it, which was great at the time. But uh, the lack of sleep, the, the eating terribly, um, there was like, a drastic difference in my health from the time that i started the tour to the time that uh that i finished
1: yeah and do you do you drink or imbibe at all
2: oh um as far as that goes what's funny is um i've never been a like a heavy drinker i'll drink enough to like kind of um take the edge off a bit uh because i think it just improves my my performance from this from the standpoint of trying something that i normally wouldn't try because i'm worried about either messing up or having everybody uh uh either messing up or having the people judge you in the moment so yeah. normally what i do is is uh, drink just enough to where i'm like enjoying myself and playing out but uh not to the point where i lose uh lose control or like uh completely destroy my own performance,
1: <laughs> yeah, totally that ma- that makes a lot of sense to me, I think um I have very similar parameters where I don't like I don't want to wonder am i am I acting okay, am I acting normal when I'm playing music, like am I off, or is it just my perception because my perception's like warped right now, but um
2: yeah,
1: I think. I- that's very different for everyone and I think a lot of people sort of go on tour and then use that as their way to like live whatever they have decided like the sort of rock star lifestyle is yeah um which obvious unhealthy living makes for a better movie than like a stable tour (laughs) so like of course it's portrayed in movies that way because it's much more entertaining than someone who's, like, waking up and having a cup of coffee and, like, going on a walk.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think it's something to be said also when you uh, have real-life examples right in front of you, too. Because, like, I hadn't gotten to the point where I was headlining most shows by myself. Um, uh, I would usually co-headline with somebody bigger than me and you have these examples of people that uh that swear by being straight edge and they advocate for it um where like maybe they'll even they'll have one drink some honestly don't even have any and it's this like kind of skewed perception that uh you would think that djs uh especially in a nightclub setting are just getting trashed there are some, but for the most part, my experience has been um, people usually either do it in moderation or not at all. It's just I'm pretty sure it's because if you're doing it every night, you're not gonna. It, it, it's uh, it's gonna catch up with you, and you're gonna hit a wall.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely, that makes sense, and I think that 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 insight is really helpful because uh, we don't all see that, and we assume that if somebody is out and around where they're are free drinks and the option to like party that that's what they're doing which is a fair assumption because what a lot of people are doing but i i think it definitely perpetuates an unhealthy idea of what what you can and should be doing when you're out or when you're on tour
2: and it's something to be said also a lot of awareness has been brought up uh, ever since tragedies like uh, avicii's tragedy and 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 stuff like that like those kinds of examples where a lot of people are also focusing not just on the physical but also the mental health portion of it uh a lot of people actually talk about uh depression after tour and not just with DJs even with like bands and things like that and I actually experienced that uh after that tour because it was such a sensory overload
1: yeah
2: you you know what I mean like every night you're getting this uh uh for lack of a better term this like praise this like insane constant praise um and just uh so much attention that the adrenaline is at an all-time high and then you and at the time i was still working retail i hadn't actually quit my day job yet so to have to go back and sell cell phones i actually was depressed for a while like uh I had come to this realization, and it actually pushed me to to quit my day job because I came to this realization and it was such a depressing thought, but I literally was, was standing at the front of Best Buy, waiting, it was a really slow day, and I was waiting for customers to come in because that's what my managers told me to do. And it was this epiphany thought that came to my mind. I was like, wow, I'm selling an hour of my life for $12. I'm like, wow. Mm. <laughs> I think my hour is worth more than that. Like I'm literally just giving them away for like a small return. So I I'm pretty sure that was one of the catalysts that drove me to to quit because even though I had the the threat of not making the money, I think that also poured more of a uh, a fire into wanting to succeed and making this work.
1: Absolutely. And I think You know, to your point about the like, I'm selling an hour of my life for $12, that is something that over the years, I have realized that there are some times that I'm totally fine to pick up a random work that doesn't pay that well, but it's better than the no money I would have had. But it it depends so much on what that's taking from me. Like if something is mentally rigorous and it's going to eat up my brain before and after the work is happening. Then it's not worth a reduced amount to me. But if something's kind of mindless mm-hmm. or it's like manual labor, like dog walking, I'm super happy to go walk a dog for twenty five dollars because I'm like, great, twenty five dollars I didn't have, I'm getting paid to go on a walk. Yeah. However, if that dog is a half an hour drive, in, like from me and in traffic, I'm like, no, never mind. That's not <laughs> not worth it to me because.
2: Because I'll be tired. Yeah. But the best part about that, like the like the situation that you just presented, it's on your own terms. I guess it's the fact that when when I was in that retail position, it was like you don't it feels like you don't have a choice. Like you have to show up to work or else you don't you don't get paid and then you don't pay your bills. But I really much prefer working quote unquote for myself
1: yeah it just definitely depends and even with something like i used to drive uber and with something like that i actually didn't mind well and it was years ago so the money was really good like i was making between like 40 to 65 an hour driving uber and then like 80 to 100 during surge so i was like yeah this wow is way better than having a normal job
2: that's amazing yeah,
1: yeah totally tpt because now it's like four dollars an hour or something depressing but yeah. And I I got to drive around. I was living in San Francisco at the time. I got to drive around San Francisco to neighborhoods I would have never really had time to check out otherwise. And then I would stop and get out and take photos or go, you know, on a hike or something when I saw an area I wanted to be in and then get back in the car and drive. And it was great. And it was totally worth it but that's a very different ball game than like showing up and like working somewhere that you have to be at where if you don't come to work one week because you were inspired and you're working on music, that job won't be there for you the next week.
2: Yeah. that's So true. And yeah, it's kind of sad, but I I will say like not to be a Debbie downer about it either. I think it actually did teach me some skills in, in the terms of like uh, time management and being like intentional with my time Mm -hmm. because uh, like at that time, um, we had already graduated college, but basically working forty hours a week, you're like, okay, what am I going to make music? So, and and also balance a social life. So you're like, okay, so I have all these plans with my friends. I have my eight-hour a day job. So what is it? I've got like two hours to make music in this day, that day, that day. So when I got into the studio, it really made me kind of make sure I got everything I could out of that two hours. So in terms of like project management and like meeting deadlines and things like that, there was there was benefits to going through that season of life, but I, I wouldn't want to go back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. I think it does. The time management perspective, definitely. I think it teaches you time management and prioritizing. Um, because it it is also really easy like if you had all the time and resources in the world to just make music it's really easy to sort of be frivolous with that and not like get the most out of every hour that you have because there's almost like too much room
2: yeah um
1: it sort of reminds me of like how snakes will grow to the size of their aquarium
2: oh no way yeah i actually didn't know that i
1: think it, it's snakes and turtles i think or maybe it's just turtles i don't remember but for sure, at least one of those reptiles, if you have them in a certain amount of aquarium, they'll grow to like an appropriate size where they can fit that. But if you increase the size of the aquarium, then they'll just keep growing.
2: Wow,
1: and so I think that we tend to be like that with our time if we're not disciplined um and if we've never had to learn how to be disciplined because I think that sometimes lessons uh, are better learned when they're sort of forced upon you instead of just going like like very few people look at their lives uh in a way where they're proactively changing normally we're reactively changing once we've experienced a negative consequence of our our current habits
2: yeah that's so true and yeah I, i've I, like going back to my work habits you're absolutely right like when i have too much time on my hands and i don't know if it's just human nature or something you kind of fill the space if that makes sense mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I got eight hours to work on a song. But like, it's not the same eight hours as you you would have had if you only had two hours, like in terms of productivity. Like, I I don't know. Like if you're on, you're on. But if you're just gonna go in without a plan or like not even a, a direction, I think you could fill that eight hours, but it's not productive.
1: Totally. Like I know for sure when we paid for studio time with an engineer that like we prepared more for that time like for the for the band that i'm in like we prepared way more for that time and then went in with like a plan versus left to our own devices like when we were just practicing and like getting songs sort of written and figured out and figuring out exactly what our sound was going to be we would we would be practicing for like seven hours with like three coffee breaks you know several breaks to like crack jokes and watch youtube videos and whatever and then be like oh yeah we maybe got three and a half hours of like solid practice
2: yeah it's like after all that but i I don't know if it's been the same with your bands because you you uh you remember in high school i used to be part of a few bands yeah and when we had those kind of days there was always that one person in the band and it wasn't me but there's always that one person in the band that got annoyed by it they're like you know what i mean the ones that like actually care about their time
1: yeah they would get
2: annoyed and then the rest of us would be like wow what's wrong with this guy
1: (laughs) Right. It's typically like the one who has like a boyfriend or girlfriend who's waiting for them or like somebody, somebody who has limited time where they have kids or they have a partner or they have another job or they're also going to school or whatever. That's like, no, we need to make the most of this. And then all of the rest of us who are like, like, I'm sort of uh, you know, like, I've been single for a while. So I'm always like, what? Like, no one's relying on me. No one cares what I'm up to today. <laughs>
2: Oh man. Yeah. That's I, that that bleeds over into other things. When when I was that way too, like I had no problem hanging out with friends and literally watching three movies back to back to back and it's like your whole day's gone, but you didn't feel you didn't feel like you wasted it. Like it was it was fine. <laughs> there was other benefits. <laughs>
1: <Right>. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, here's another question I have. So, you have I know this because I'm your friend, but while making music you've also done other things to like have an income um how have you sort of like managed those different parts of your life like can you walk us through like your approach to your brand as a musician but then also the other uh revenue streams that you have
2: yeah i actually can't take credit for that that's honestly all my manager uh his name's sean um I actually had a point where some of my, my, uh, different, uh, involvements kind of all started meshing together and it was, and I didn't realize it, but it was actually hindering me from progressing in, uh, my music. So like the background on it, just so everybody else is involved. I know you know about it, but, um, uh, our our mutual friend matt frederick uh, he's also known as uh, matthias on youtube uh, he actually offered me um, my full-time paying gig to write music uh, and do artist development and label management for his company so i'm 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 co-writing and producing and uh developing an artist named rose and that is the bulk of my income and it is a Monday through Friday, uh, nine to five, but it's what I want to be doing anyway. So it doesn't feel like a, like a, like a drag on me. Um, but it was really cool because he allowed me to move my studio to his facility and we, uh, we got the room treated and, uh, um, because of a separate space, I was able to build out my gear even more. I think I invested like twenty five, thirty thousand $30,000 in the last like <laughs> Three years on new gear, just because I was able to finally have the room to expand. Um, so, it, it and with that, obviously, I got twenty-four hour access to the to the studio, and I could work late hours without bothering anybody. So, um, it, there was a lot of benefits to that, aside from just uh, being able to, you know, work with my best friend and get a, a steady income. Um, but it also grew my social followings because it's it's youtube now the way the reason why i got murky is because the work that i was doing in the youtube spectrum with them had nothing to do with my dance music uh career and because uh fans of both pools would migrate to the same uh let's say instagram accounts twitter accounts and things like that it became increasingly hard to. Communicate to my dance music fans about the new the new work I was doing because it was being overshadowed by the YouTube stuff. So, um, my manager, one of the first things he did when he came on the scene was, we need to rebrand. We need to to create this uh, this brand separation. Um, although it might be difficult at first because it feels like you're alienating uh, certain parts of your fan base. Um, in terms of your image and what you're portraying to the rest of the world, uh, when we're trying to create new, new opportunities for ourselves, you need to, to be able to be, um, I guess, sized up or, or people need to know what you're about without having to look very hard. And that was a problem. Like you would go to my Instagram and, and, and at one point it was like, is this guy still doing music? Cause it looks like he, he hasn't done anything in a while. In the meantime, it's like yeah, it's there, but I'm posting so much and it's so intertwined with the other stuff. If I were a promoter of a nightclub going to that, that Instagram profile, it'd be like, it looks like this guy quit. You know what I mean? But it's not, that's not the case. Um, So we had to basically go in and hide and delete a bunch of posts um, and just basically create that separation. So now Uh, on my social so on my socials and things like that it's strictly music Um, but if you go to YouTube obviously my involvement with high five studios is very prevalent there but it's it's keeping things separate Um, it would have been easier probably if I would have just changed my name (laughs) like created an alias or something like that Um, but uh, but that's how we're starting to manage um, how we're portrayed. Like, actually, perfect example. I don't even know if you saw this. There used to be, and I say there used to be, a video on YouTube where Matt pranked me in his apartment with the with the Amazon Alexa. Do you remember that?
1: I, no. No, okay. no, I so I never, I've never really watched Matt's videos outside of, like, when I've been looking for something specific and one of his videos have, has come along and I'm like, oh, this is so weird. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like... My elementary school friend, like telling me what to buy, text. like, great, I'll listen to him. Yeah, so I've never actually watched his videos outside of that. Oh, that's
2: crazy. So, so the basically the premise of this video was like, you know how gullible I am, but yeah. Uh, um, so the Amazon Alexa used to have a feature that um, that it was a Simon Says feature. So Matt was in the other room pretending to talk to his wife Amanda. But all the while, he's listening to me interact with the Alexa for the first time, basically saying, like, how do you know who I am? And he was just, like, answering back with the Simon Says feature. Oh. And I legit thought, like, Skynet had taken over the globe. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this video got, like, 3.4 million views. And the it was great at the time for him. But for me, now, like, my manager's Googling me, right? And the first thing that pops up, Is this video? And he's like, dude, like we can't have we can't have, let's say, um, Insomniac Google you and the first thing that comes up is you getting pranked in your Best Buy uniform at your friend's apartment. So like things like that. So I I also had to partner with Matt on a few things to be like, hey, can you hide that video? Because uh it it just it you need to make sure that the image that you're portraying is easily digestible to to your new um, business opportunities and your new, uh, connections. And again, like that was not something that I was cognizant of. It was brought to my attention once I got help, um, in that, in that spectrum.
1: Well, yeah. Yeah. And it's, I imagine it's also very tricky because, At the same time, you're like, yeah, but I'm getting all these views and more people are being made aware of me. However, it's not the right people. Yes. So it's one of those things where it's like probably very good earlier on in your career, but then you're like, okay, we need to like focus the content stream that's out there a little bit more to be very specific to what I want to be hired for. Because unfortunately, in entertainment where like each person is also a brand yeah like people 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 sort of look to them almost like the way that we shop on a website where they you go to a website and like i love Aesop, right and i go there for their deodorant and if i go there and all of a sudden and like i've only ever shopped for deodorant and then they have lotion i'm like oh great maybe i'll get lotion too yeah but never would i go to Aesop and go like hey do you also make like bath bombs, like I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell them what their product features should be. Yeah. So when people are looking for like, Hey, we want to hire this talent or whoever, and then they look you up and they see that everything you've done recently is, um, hi, his company is called high five, right? Yeah that everything's high five related. They're like, Oh, maybe he's not doing that anymore. Like we don't want to go down that alley. Right. So like, if they're, if they're like, Oh, everything that he's done lately for the last two years, looks like it's all with high five, he must not be doing music. We're not going to ask like, for whatever reason, people just don't ask. You have to be like, hello, I do music. Also, I have other talents.
2: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and you also have to like, just from, just from like an advance an, an advice standpoint, it's uh you have to think about it as these people don't have all the time in the world and you're the one that's approaching them for the most part, unless you've gotten to that point in your career where you're the one being approached. So if you're approaching them and they have, and they've given you that 30 seconds of their time, because that's really, I I feel like uh, it probably isn't more than that in, in terms of like that initial search or that initial peak of interest. So you got 30 seconds of their attention and if they need to do work to even go find out what you're about you're not you're not going to you're not going to hold their attention and nothing's going to come from it and to be frank you probably blew your shot with that person
1: yeah totally which is it's a lot of pressure and it's very it's very weird yeah how have you how have you learned to like um Sorry, what were you gonna say, Mike? I think our like there's a little bit of a lag, so sorry. Go ahead with what you were gonna say.
2: Oh no, it was just it was just anecdotal. It was basically like that's how business over the internet is these days. Like you don't have face to face meetings. Your your meeting is basically all of the body of work that you've assembled before that moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it is very it is very um, odd, and I think it also can mess people's heads a lot in terms of like um, you know, I've seen a lot of people be good at what they do musically or comedy wise or whatever it may be, and then stress out over their online presence. Like how have you, how have you learned to sort of, uh, manage those, I don't know, I guess just stay level-headed and grounded over the years.
2: It's honestly a skill that you develop, I think, especially because, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with like the Enneagram personality tests and things like that. I tested as a type two. So, uh, sorry, a type four. So I'm, um, I'm emotionally centered. So initially when I was, uh, putting myself out there as a brand or like with my image and things like that, um, having to sift through comments, it's crazy. The, the skill that you have to, to, uh, develop, I guess for me, it was I could have read a hundred positive comments and gotten that one negative comment and like I focused on that one negative comment and it would bother the heck out of me. And it's it's to the point where it's like I've trained myself to take even the positive comments with like a grain of salt because it shouldn't inform your decisions of what you're gonna do in the future really but also just ignoring the negative as well. Just being secure and confident in what you're doing and the product that you're making and who you are, um, that takes work. But, but as much as it is, uh, like when you're searching for, for someone to be in a relationship with (laughs) where you got to be confident and whole for yourself, it's the same thing with trying to build an online presence. You need to be confident and whole and, and, uh, and know who you are and what you're about before trying to gather an audience. Because I'm pretty sure that inauthenticity is is spotted from a mile away. And I think that's what uh, causes you to not build that following or have it be very short-lived.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. And and one thing that I've, uh, I've talked to some friends about who struggled sort of between making creative Like, whatever their creative output may be, like, sort of doing what's true to them or doing what they think is the latest trend or what people will respond to. One thing that I constantly remind them of is like, if you are aiming for this moving target that is consumer satisfaction, when people like that, like, say you were to make music that you didn't really feel strongly about but it hit home with like a very specific audience. Yeah. Like the problem with that is then you're sort of sacrificing your integrity. And also then when people like what you're doing, you're not going to feel respectful toward your end consumer because you know that that's not what you want to be doing. So it, it ends up creating like false relationships. If you do any kind of creative output that you don't respect because then you're building an audience that you also don't respect and that can't be healthy for people at all.
2: Yeah, uh, what's funny is I actually went through that. It was almost like a like almost like a renaissance because just to give you the background, the first I want to say 10 years of my career, I was a trance artist. I made trance music. And like my brand, the the thing that I was known for was progressive trance. So it progressive trance is basically it has those like melodic elements and atmospheric breakdowns and everything of a trance song, but it was more on the house tip in terms of like its groove, its vibe, its tempo. So it's like slower trance, and for that ten years, it worked well for me, and it was it was fantastic. And uh, once I dropped my album, which I had been working on for five years, it did really well, and then I continued doing progressive trance for that year but the industry took a complete pivot like the industry completely pivoted away from my style of music and went uh uplifting trance which was like the 140 bpm really um uh like this is a safe space so i'm just gonna say it it's like really happy and cheesy and twinkly and i hated it and literally that's all that was selling like I dropped like three singles afterward and I um I guess my expectations I was always that person that like debuted on the top 100 in like the 50s and then it would you know rise to the 30s and the 40 or, sorry 30s and the 20s uh, like on my good records um I had like seven top 10s in my entire career so it wasn't exactly like Frequent that I got those top 10 records, but like the last two or three trance singles that I put out, I had poured literally my heart into it. And the DJ community supported the crap out of them. Like Paul Van Dyke, Armin Van Buren, um, all those big, heavy hitting trance guys were playing these records and they didn't even break the top 100 at all, like in the lifespan of the singles. So that's when I, I almost like rebelled and was like, you know what? forget it. I'm going to go do big room, like house music, the festival stuff. And I wasn't even really into it, but I was just like, well, if I'm not making any money and I'm not being gratified, like in positive praise for the stuff that I like making, um, I'm going to go do where the money's at. And I did that for a couple of years. One, it I didn't garner an audience uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, I missed the boat on the commercial tip of it secondly it i'm pretty sure people could read me like a book in the sense that like this isn't what i like to make um and so basically it it went nowhere so for the last 18 months or so i i watched the uh initially i watched the daft punk documentary and you know how much of a massive daft punk fan i am yeah but uh i watched their daft punk unchained documentary and literally it, it, they went through that renaissance of being in the band Darling with the with the guitarist of, uh, from Phoenix and they were and once Phoenix got that scathing review of their EP and they were like screw this we're not going to uh, not Phoenix I'm sorry when Darling got that scathing review uh where basically they were like these guys are mediocre at best mm-hmm. when Thomas and and Guy Manuel left to form Daft Punk they literally were like, we just made music we felt like making. And I was like, wow, what a concept. Why don't I do that? (laughs) So for like the last, uh, I want to say 18 months or so, I've been making Funky House, which is something that I grew up on, like disco-influenced house music. Mm -hmm. Like when I first started DJing on vinyl, like that's the stuff that I bought. Uh, That's the stuff I would DJ with. So I'm I'm working on that. I'm working on like Uh, melodic progressive house which is basically progressive trance but even slower (laughs) because as I get older my tempo gets slower (laughs) but I feel so fulfilled and I'm already working with guys that I I loved in that spectrum as well like I have a really good relationship with Cascades uh, label now Um, and I'm still working with my with Tiesto's original label Black Hole Recordings Like they've been really supportive over the last 13 years, but it's so funny. Like as I, even though I came back to a completely different genre other than trans, I am going back to getting that support and growth in the industry. And I think it just correlates to authenticity, like doing what you actually care about. And I think the love of it shows in your work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Thank you for that. That context and background, I, I really appreciate you being open about that because I think I think a lot of people feel like uh, bumps in the road in their career are some sort of shortcoming when to me it's like you don't grow without getting uncomfortable and making mistakes and like learning from those mistakes is really, really important. And I think that the more that we can share what we've learned from our own misdirection, the more it helps other people not feel like failures or like their life is over when they've done something that didn't go as well as they thought or as well as their projects previously had.
2: Yeah, I feel like it uh, just in general life experience when we talk about life experience, um I don't think it's how many years you've been on this planet. I think it's how much you've experienced. And some people could have experienced more in let's say 12 years of their life than someone who had kind of like a cruise control life for 30 years. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying those that, are the, those that haven't had a hard life are less qualified or something, but I'm just saying uh, there's lessons to be learned when you try and fail and then get back up and try again.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, we touched on this a little bit before we started recording. And so we're going to switch gears real quick. So being having like a creative uh career and doing the kind of work that you do can be I don't know, it can be difficult with like family and personal relationships. How have you navigated uh personal relationships and dating included while doing what you do?
2: Oh, um Honestly, I I would say that I haven't had a rough time with it, mostly because um, I, I feel like I'm pretty structured in my routine. Like, e- even when uh, those days when I'm working on my own music, when it's not high five related, uh, I'm done by seven or 730, sometimes eight, I kind of discontinued my, my habits of staying in the studio till 4am because it it was weighing on, uh, my personal relationships, like with my friends or with my family. And it almost uh, makes it feel like to them that you're prioritizing music over them, music over your family, music over your, your friendships. Um, because it even got to the point where I turned into one of those people that like was horrible about responding to texts. Mm. And, uh, luckily, uh, the wake up call for me was honestly, my friends being caring and calling me out on it. Like I got called out on it. Um, uh, basically like you obviously don't care about me because you won't even pick up the phone to call me back or text me back. Like, I know your phone's on you, but you're just the one that's being MIA. As far as like dating goes, um uh my girlfriend and I have been together for like two years, but I guess one of the things that was awesome was we we started out long distance and um got to know each other uh over that long distance and uh I, I guess all of our time was intentional. And she's moved out here since she's she's here in, in LA now and uh, and we've just picked up right where we left off in that sense and i think it was great that i met her after going through those trials of uh, of like of like prioritizing my career over my friends and my family because honestly that would have put probably put a strain on that relationship as well so i guess uh timing is to be set for that too like in terms of learning those life experience life lessons that you need to do in order to set yourself up for those those situations yeah so i've been very lucky that 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 hasn't happened like relationship wise but as far as family and friends like the learning period was with them and luckily they called me out
1: yeah and your your family's pretty traditional if i remember correctly how How has been, like, uh, navigating conversations about your unique career path been with your family?
2: Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, that was rough. Uh, Believe it or not, uh, the first six years of me DJing and touring was uh, in secret. (laughs) I wasn't actually (laughs) allowed to do it.
1: I'm not surprised by that at all.
2: Yeah, like, no joke. My first shows were in Modesto, California, where my cousin lived. And then everywhere around there, because um, it was easy for me to basically give the excuse of uh, I'm going to go up north and visit grandma and visit my cousins and stuff. But let alone my cousin and I, uh, who, who we used to produce together all the time, and we used to play a lot of the same gigs together. Him and I would basically get in a car and drive to San Fran or like Sacramento or Fresno or Stockton or whatever and be playing these shows and uh not having my parents know what's going on. And it even got to the point where like I played Vegas, I played uh I played Chicago or like Phoenix and things like that and they weren't the wiser. And it was mostly because it, it wasn't like in a defiance kind of way. I, I kinda knew who I was. Like I understand that they were that they were afraid of me getting into let's say like drugs or alcohol or, or you know, just like exposing myself to, to potentially addictive behaviors, they were doing it out of love, but it's like, I knew where my head was at. I knew that this was all business. So I kind of weighed the risk of pissing them off <laughs> to, uh, stipling my career. And it actually came about from, I actually have, I don't know if I've ever talked about this. Maybe I have, uh, publicly, but, uh, in 2007, when Tiësto did first discover me, he offered me um, a chance to open for him in Ibiza uh, at Amnesia, and it, it came down to a point where uh, where my dad was like, "Well, if you go, you're gonna have to leave the house because you're not allowed to DJ, and you won't be welcome back if you go." So I said no to Tiësto, <laughs> and the person that took my spot was uh, was Matt Zo, and and then. As soon as he did that, I'm not I'm not saying like the correlation to like his the success of his career was based on saying yes to this gig in Ibiza, but like at the time it felt like it because he blew up and then I was still making records that were like hitting in the 50s and 60s on the charts, <laughs> not, not knowing that I should have just been grateful for, for the fact that I was even charting. But uh, it kind of forced my decision of like, yo, I'm not going to not play. So I I started doing it that way. And it wasn't until, it was so funny, it was like six or seven years later, my mom discovered Google Images and she's like, oh my God, let's see what we can find. So she like Googled herself, she Googled her friends, and then she Googled me and then she was like, what? And there's all these photos of me (laughs) playing these shows. And she's like, "Uh, Michael, (laughs) how long has this been going on for? Oh, my God. I was like uh, six years. And she's like, what? I go, I don't know why you guys are so mad. Like, I never came home drunk. I never came home high. I never ended up in rehab or, (laughs) you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, it's been going on for six years and you weren't the wiser. So, obviously, it was fine. And then, honestly, it kind of, like, broke that stigma. So, um, granted, I'm 31 now. Like, let's be honest. But I'm 31 now. (laughs) But, like. At least in my early 20s, I was able to break that stigma and and tour more freely and not have to like go around and go behind their back just because like I needed a place to live, (laughs) you know.
1: Yeah, that's wild. I respect you because I'm so stubborn that like, I mean, our parents. But like my parents like the only people like i never have anything in common with like other white kids uh parents because my parents are like very religious and yeah. like like all my friends who are middle eastern like all of their parents are exactly like my parents who would like <laughs> never let me do anything
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> like one, one of my best friends in college like she's palestinian and like And she was like, you're the only friend I'm allowed to hang out with just because like I knew how to act around strict parents because my parents are so strict. But I also (laughs) like because of that, I I moved out like three days after I turned 18 because my parents were like, hey, if you want to keep living here, here are the grades you have to pull. You still have to come with us to church on Sundays and you have to pay X amount of rent. And I was like, yeah, goodbye. Like, no, thank you. And I think I still had like a 10 o'clock curfew.
2: Oh, no way. So
1: I moved out. Yeah, so I moved out immediately. Like, even when I go home and visit my parents up where we grew up, like, if I want to go hang out with a friend from high school, they're like, well, just please be home by 10 o'clock. Oh, wow. So I for sure moved out right away, like, as soon as possible. Yeah, that's why I asked about your family, because I figured that that makes for, like, interesting, especially with, with extended family. Like, I don't know how much family... Uh, like, how much the rest of your family, but I know that, like, with my family, my parents were always very concerned about, like, the rest of our family sort of judging the decisions that I'm making and stuff like that, and now they're a little bit more relaxed, but like you said, like, you know, I'll be 31 in May, and now they're sort of like, well, yeah, we don't always love the decisions you make, but you never ask us for money, so I guess it's all right.
2: <laughs> yeah, the, I feel like that's kind of where I'm at, too, because I, I, I honestly think, That, like, it came from a place of love. Of course. I don't think it was, like, just, like, the need to be controlling or whatever uh, with my parents. I mean, I – you know, I I got it. Like, they – especially coming from an an immigrant family um, where both of my parents were immigrants. Like, they came here. Obviously, they want you to do well. They want to make sure that you're secure. They want to make sure that, like, you have a roof over your head and food on the table and stuff like that. And it wasn't until – um i think it was almost like the the proof was there that it's like oh he's been doing this for six months uh sorry six months six years and no negative consequences have happened and even now now that i quit the day job and i'm doing it full-time now it's like it's almost like it's accepted now that this is a a quote-unquote real career Mm -hmm. because uh this was always like the pipe dream (laughs) you know what i mean like this was always the pipe dream where uh it wasn't supported they wanted me to like have an, a plan a where it's like either i'm a lawyer or like like a real estate agent or something like that and then you know on your free time if you feel like it go make your music and be happy but it's i don't know try to explain the try to explain something like the need to have to live and breathe making music to someone that sees it as just a hobby i, I don't know it's just you can't make someone understand it
1: yeah especially i think a big difference is i think where your parents and my parents are both both coming from was like like you and i see the the creative compulsion as a part of like the living and breathing but i know that for sure for my parents like they were literally worried about living and breathing where they were like no we we're like not making ends meet like I, I remember as a kid my mom waking us up early on trash day to go around and get like plastic bottles to take them to the recycler for money oh wow so like she's coming from the perspective where like my mom yeah so like my mom's an artist too and to her she loved it yeah. but she always approached art like oh yeah that's something that i love doing but like what about real life mm. so i think for her she understands the creativity aspect but for sure they you know both of our parents were more worried about survival and protecting us from poor choices and like the the trappings of you know a worldly life because i think your parents are religious too aren't they
2: yeah yeah as am i but but yeah
1: yeah so i think that that's where a lot of and i agree with you it was totally like i never I always knew that my parents were saying that out of love and concern and not because they thought I was like a bad kid or because I was, you know, I had shortcomings. I totally knew it was out of like wanting to protect me from things. Um, So I definitely also, you know, to the best of my teenage, uh, non, non non-formed frontal lobe, tried to like be respectful in anything that I was doing, respectfully hide it from them. (laughs) But like,
2: yeah same
1: (laughs) (laughs) because I was like no I'm doing this out of respect and even now even now when I see like teenagers sometimes or other people talk about what they're doing in front of their parents I'm like at least have the respect to lie you know like at least have the respect to like not let your parents know you're doing things that are like concerning like I would never just like let my parents know if I was doing something risky like I didn't even tell my mom I went skydiving until after I went skydiving because I was like yeah there's no reason to make her worry like we'll let her know that everything's fine when it's fine
2: you know what's you know what's weird though like about my situation that I could never understand and I've I guess I've never asked them either but I couldn't understand why they were okay with with me going to events though like that was never an issue like uh, you know how you and I had talked recently that like we used to go to CineSpace and like and like the Echo yeah. and and all these different clubs like like Florentine Gardens and all that they knew uh-huh. I was going to those because I'd tell them and they were totally fine with me being an attendee but there was an issue with being part of the show Interesting. or being part of the business like yeah isn't that weird like like that I was is totally weird. allowed to yeah
1: well it's also because you're a boy like my parents I, which p.s shout out to florentine gardens i would totally forgotten about that spot so thank you for that for that reminder <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, i don't know what they were doing letting me in as a child but whatever um let bygones be bygones um, <laughs> Um, me and Ashley Moldover used to go together, but, um, (laughs) yeah, like she, uh, she used to drive me down when, uh, you know, way back in the day before I should have been, you know, yeah, my parents for sure would have never let me, like, they wouldn't even let me go to like the roller rink dances at Mount Asia. So for sure, (laughs) I was not about to ask if I could go to Tiger Heat, like that was out of the question when I had to like do chores to earn the ability to go to (laughs) like, going to go to like a a youth group bowling party my mom would be like well I don't know if you earned the right to go to the youth group party this this month um so for sure I did not ask if I could go to Florentine Gardens or Tiger (laughs) Heat
2: yeah that's definitely yeah you're right that's definitely the double standard that I see here too because like I'll be honest with you I'm pretty sure um I'm pretty sure my sister gets it way worse than I ever did for sure yeah
1: Well, no one's ever, no one's kidnapping men. You know, no one's like, oh, all those like Middle Eastern men that have gone missing in Los Angeles. They're being trafficked.
2: That's definitely true.
1: (laughs) No one's like worried about their sons being trafficked.
2: Yeah, that's very true.
1: (laughs) They're like, I don't know, my son's 17 and has a beard. He might, he might be getting into some trouble. The, the concerns are very different for sure. Um, so man what else i'm looking at my different questions i have for you uh what do you feel like like what do you feel like out of all the different things you have going on right now like what are you most excited about
2: oh my gosh so the the really fun thing about the last six months has been that i've been able to work on so much music and ever since pivoting towards uh towards attaching myself to a sound that I identify with. Um, I've put out, uh, not that I've put out, I have so much music in the pipeline that's like ready to come out. Um, so I think I've got like eight singles already in the pipeline. I don't know if they're all going to come out in 2020, but, uh, it's, it's gonna come out pretty steadily. So I'm really excited about that. Um, and then with that hopefully once this virus goes away we could start touring again because I haven't done that in so long I really want to do it again um but but yeah I can't right now (laughs) well yeah fair
1: enough did you have to cancel any any shows or tour dates with um everything going on with COVID-19
2: no but I had to cancel a bunch of life events like uh like uh my, one, my best friend's getting married and we were supposed to go to Miami for his bachelor party. That's canceled. Um, uh, I was supposed to surprise my girlfriend in, in Chicago. That got canceled. Um, yeah, so I, I think I canceled all of like four flights. None of them had to do with business, but it was stuff I was really looking forward to. <laughs> but the thing that uh, it is canceling right now is that right now our facility is locked down. And I can't access my studio for 30 days. So I got to kind of like reteach myself to make music with just a laptop, um, which I I haven't been used to doing that in like, I don't know, six years or so. Um, And on top of that, a lot of people aren't taking on new business ventures right now because of COVID-19. Like, um, I can't really talk to a touring agent when that guy can't even feed his current list of artists, you know what I mean? Um, let alone take on a new talent. Label, label operations are kind of slow at the moment too. Um, I'm pretty sure some big releases have been delayed that I'm a part of because you can't tour to support it. You know what I mean? So everything's a waiting game now. <laughs>
1: yeah definitely it's certainly now that i have like the time to reach out about like we're we're supposed to be releasing our album it was supposed to come out like a week or two ago yeah and then i've just felt so weird about reaching out with like press staff that i'm like is it appropriate to be like hey music writer i know you're not getting paid but i've got an album coming
2: out yeah it's not yeah it's it's uh it's also something to be said also for our actual listeners like I mean, I'm not Dua Lipa and I'm not The Weeknd. Obviously, those two just like dropped albums and I'm sure they're going to do fine because all of their adoring fans are at home waiting for them. But for somebody like my size, if I'm tweeting about new music, sure, my diehards are going to appreciate it. But if I'm trying to attract someone outside of that circle right now and you're basically getting hammered uh, by COVID-19 news, I don't think somebody my size would even make that much of a uh an impact you know what i mean in terms of the marketing spectrum like on the marketing tip so yeah it's probably not the best idea i think it's better that you're postponing
1: yeah yeah and it's and it's weird too cuz i'm like oh some of this like i mean i just don't know like is spotify still making playlists right like are are their employees uh working right now and like curating playlists or is that like rude of me so yeah we've just sort of been i think we're going to release the single i'm i'm releasing this album through one rpm and so i think we're going to release the single it's scheduled to come out on monday but i'm sort of hesitant to just like put the whole album out quite yet um and at the same time i'm like well if a if a tree what is it? If a tree falls in the woods and no one hears it, like, did it make a sound? I'm like, like I just don't know which direction to go in. But, um, I honestly
2: would say, right. Your, oh, go ahead.
1: I don't know. Go ahead. You, Please give me free advice. I'm not going to say.
2: Yeah, no. yeah. I was going to say, honestly, <laughs> uh, right now, what I would probably do is set up a string of singles, especially because, uh, people are home, even though, even though, uh, people like press writers or like publicists and things like that might be out of work because nobody's paying them. Like you said, Um, at least from the content creation standpoint, people like Spotify creators, I'm pretty sure they could work remotely. They probably already do work remotely. So I wouldn't worry about them as much in terms of quote unquote, bothering them. But, um, but I would set up a string of singles leading up to the album. Because one, that'll get your Spotify algorithm going, uh, like constantly pinging that Mm -hmm. like, oh, Lene's band just put out another album. Uh, Sorry, another single. Oh, and another single and another single. So even though you might not get featured on a Spotify playlist now, if you're ramping up and you're collecting followers and streams leading up to the album, uh, you're probably going to end up on their radar much easier than if you just like, wait it mm. out have complete radio silence and then be like promote my album for me you know what i mean
1: yeah that's a good idea thank you i appreciate it
2: there's actually a, a name for it it's not my strategy uh, the person that made it public uh i think more widely is charlie xcx she did an interview with my friend danny uh for the verge and they call it the waterfall effect
1: Oh, I love that! Shout out to Charlie X. Yeah.
2: No, that's super helpful because I've,
1: I mean, and it's funny because as a digital strategist, I probably like I think I've even gone like, will that help? But because I don't know enough about Spotify's algorithm, I'm like, I don't know, will it help? Is it weird? I, like, and so that is, um, that is like very reassuring to get that advice. So thank you. Um, when you release your music, are you with a label right now?
2: Yeah, it depends. I try to be with a label just because. Um, in my genre, it's street cred. Um, but with that, you're also giving up points. And albums are released independently when it's a record that I really believe in. And for some reason it doesn't match uh, the mission of like what the record labels I'm affiliated with are about. So I release independent quite often, um, but when I can, I do try to partner up with, with a label with dance music, it's it's really different because it's on a release by release basis. You're not like signing yourself as an artist. It's like the actual, it's the actual release. And um, I will say like monetarily, I actually do better on the indie front than I do with the label. Um, but uh, there's a lot of uh, marketing credibility that goes with being part of a collective because labels these days, they're almost like collectives because they're owned by big DJs anyway. So if you're part of this collective, it's like, Oh, wow, that guy's got, uh, uh, what is it? Like, like almost like a stamp of approval from so-and-so we should work with him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. But on the monetary front, no, no joke. Yeah, that makes- my classical album has probably made more money for me than some of my biggest and I do air quotes, because you can't see me, um, <laughs> is, Then some of my biggest <laughs> dance hits. Like, my classical album has done better, monetarily, because there's you're collecting, That's yeah, amazing. it's because you're collecting 100% of it. You know what I mean? Instead of, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, and it's something that, too, I'm sure gets, like, put in the bucket of, like, oh, this is, like, music to listen to while you're working. Like, I imagine it's on a lot of playlists and that are specific to relaxing and classical and it's like more of a niche genre and so to hear something that's new in classical music yeah um i'm sure hits a little bit harder in that subculture than the super uh saturated world of
2: yeah dance. that's probably true actually i didn't think of that maybe the genre in and of itself actually made it easier to be recognized.
1: Yeah, it is. It is interesting when you start digging into those details where I almost think of them as like YouTube tags where you're like, Oh, actually, if we hit hard, like with our, um, all of our music videos, cause my band mate is a really incredible animator. So they're all animated in a very like adult swim style. And so it's cool because I know already that like visually we have that going for us. Um, And can use, like, the animation tag on YouTube just because that will put us in a very different category than, like, a normal music video that has people's faces and stuff in it.
2: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and just going off of that point, you know how you were saying you don't know how the Spotify algorithm works? Mm -hmm. If you're familiar with the way the YouTube algorithm works, it actually is very close to the way the Spotify algorithm is. Because, yeah, Spotify rewards content creators, basically. So if you're somebody that drops one single the whole year, they don't really care about you as much as well, unless you're Drake. But like, you know what I mean? That right. that goes without saying. But if you're an inde yeah, but if you're an independent artist and you're someone that puts out a record, let's say every six weeks or every eight weeks, um, and your fan base is growing, um, yeah, you're obviously on their radar. So that's what I would say like that. And that's what Charlie XCX did actually with her last album. I think there's like, I don't know how many tracks there are, but she dropped 10 singles leading up to it. She literally, it was every month. So from January through, through October, I'm just like speaking hypothetically, it was single, 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 single. And then she drops the album in November.
1: And was the album just all the singles strung together, like what, or was it totally separate?
2: Yeah, seriously, it was all the singles strung together, and plus some extra ones that nobody's heard. But but the crazy thing is, so check this out. So the way Spotify works also is is with uh, this bar this like global barcode system. I don't know if you've probably seen it when like when you upload your music, it gets assigned something called an ISRC which is an international mm-hmm. sh- song yeah yeah I don't know I don't remember what the anyways it's an international barcode like a digital barcode so when you release your track as the single and then you add it to your album it's got the same ISRC so the cool thing is once you put out these records and let's say each one of your singles does like 100,000 streams or whatever when your album comes out on day 1 it appears as though 10 of your songs already have a hundred thousand streams and it like boosts the numbers of your album exactly making it more apt for newcomers to be like oh let's listen to this new person with their new album look at how many streams they already have
1: that's fascinating oh thank you for this this is all very helpful goodness i feel like i feel like i should be paying you (laughs) (laughs) Um, and and i looked it up so isrc stands for international standard recording code yeah is, yeah riveting
2: yeah. um <laughs> yeah you're basically your your distributor assigns it for you um you don't have to do anything about it. i'm pretty sure if you've like uploaded to cd baby or tune core or whatever they uh they assign it for you
1: so actually one so uh, another friend of mine who's on this podcast, who I need to release her episode because we recorded it in October and I still haven't released <laughs> it yet. But she works at One RPM, and when I was I was talking to her about um the release, and she encouraged me to use their platform, and I was going to use DistroKid because my friend is the founder of DistroKid, and I've actually done some work for them.
2: No way! They probably hate me. I yell at them all the time.
1: Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure Phil loves you. He's a lovely person. <laughs> um, shout out to Phil Kaplan. He's delightful. Um, but she actually encouraged me to use one RPM and I was, I was interested. And so I, I tried it out and it's pretty cool. Like their dashboard and distribution options are all really, really interesting. So I'll, I'll see how it goes, but they have a really great backend with analytics and a lot of different features. So I'm excited to try it out. And I figured like, she's been, she's been such a good friend to me that I was like, yeah, I'll give it a shot. Like, I mean, DistroKit is great. I just figured I would, I would try this. Let Um,
2: me know how you like it because, uh, I have high five on on DistroKid at the moment and we're happy with them. Just every once in a while like really bad glitches happen and that's where I yell at them, but <laughs> but uh in general they've been pretty good.
1: Yeah, and I like that they're independently owned. Like there's a lot of things I really like about DistroKid. Um and certainly if if uh If Jordan and I at 1RPM weren't so close, I definitely would have used DistroKid. In fact, I should introduce you and my friend Jayhawk. He was on this podcast, like on episode five or six, I think.
2: Uh And he's
1: a producer. And I bet you guys would have like really interesting conversations about self-management and stuff like that. Just because he, he um, he was really big during the jerk movement. And then he's since worked with a lot of people. He's done tracks with like E40 and he's worked with a lot of up and coming artists. Um, oh, no way but he has like yeah he's great and he he's in la also and he does a lot of videos and content encouraging producers to like self-manage and how to own their own careers and like be recognized as artists um you guys should definitely connect i think you'd have a lot to talk about
2: that would be really cool actually that'd be great
1: um yeah i'll i'll hit him up and then i'll put you guys on an email or something after this That's awesome um, I think. Oh my goodness, Michael, we covered so much. I think that you have answered all of my questions. Is there anything specific that you'd like to talk about that you don't think we covered?
2: Um, no, not necessarily. I almost feel like this was like a, uh, like a independent music one hundred and one, which I'm really stoked about because uh, hopefully people will will find use for this info. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, definitely. I think, and I think it's also, I think that. A, there is the informational part, but then also B, there's like the human part. Like in your case, right? It's like a lot of incrementalism where like you'd worked on music across different genres and done a lot of different things for quite some time before before you were put on by Tiesto. And then like other things have happened since like, and for people to see that like, you don't get put on by someone like Tiesto and then that just like makes you overnight rich and famous that you still have to like stick with it and keep working and like stay true to yourself. I think that's such an important story for people to see and hear and see how people continue to grow even even when they're getting industry recognition and like making a living off music that like you're obviously still challenging yourself and expanding your capabilities and like, you know, just constantly working to be better, which is one thing I definitely respect about you.
2: Thank you. What's funny is a lot of people ask advice like, oh, what do you think somebody starting out in music or starting out in photography or starting out in graphic design or whatever, What what's the one advice you would give that person? And it's really, it always comes down to work and be relentless about your work. Because uh, to be honest with you, not one opportunity is going to make you a quote unquote success. You literally have to grind every day. And a lot of times you get pushback on that answer, which is hilarious. Because like people think like we're holding the keys to like to some secret, but it's really there is no secret. It's just working your butt off and amassing uh, content or a body of work that like when you do finally get in the room with that AR person or you do meet that manager or you do meet that agent, you're ready for it. You don't want to meet that person early on in your career. You want to do it when you're ready.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a, um, I went to a really cool talk that was through a partnership between NASA and National Geographic with Terry Virts, who is an astronaut. And he said that somebody like came up to him and was like, how could a normal person like me go into space, like someone like you? And he was like, I'm also a normal person. Like, I just worked really hard and stuck with this and then you know like I don't think he went to space until he was in his like late 30s or early 40s and he's like and then I went into space like it's not like I'd woke up one day and somebody was like hey you'd make a great astronaut
2: <laughs> yeah that's so true
1: yeah I thought I found it like very reaffirming to go like oh yeah like astronauts are people too so the last question I ask everybody on this podcast is what is something that you would like to hear a future episodes episode of the behind the scenes podcast about
2: Ooh, oh, i should have been prepped for this i actually like i listened to this podcast
1: <laughs> oh thank you
2: i do i would want to know the behind the scenes of hmm. have you have you done an episode with a film producer yet
1: not specifically a producer. I've done one with, like, a writer and, like, a filmmaker, but not specifically a producer. Yeah,
2: I would want to know uh, basically what actually goes into the lifespan of, like, getting a film funded to actually getting it made and then getting it sold.
1: Okay. Yeah. Are there any producers specifically that you, like, uh, have in mind?
2: Um Granted, I don't know how we would approach her, but like Christopher Nolan's wife is somebody that I really admire. Emma Thompson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I, I don't know any personally.
1: <laughs> well kick Emma know. Thompson in um, mind. she'll be my like uh she'll be,
2: <laughs> she'll be like my goal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you could do it. You're working your butt off every week, so why not? Yeah, tell it
1: with Christopher <laughs> I'm like, okay, so Emma Thompson, she's an actress, screenwriter, activist, but Christopher, are they married? Christopher Nolan, who is his spouse? Oh, Emma, Emma
2: Thomas. Yeah, Emma. Thomas, sorry. That's okay.
1: I was like, hold on a second. Okay, so what is she, I'm looking at her thing right now. What has she done? Oh, wow. She had the dark. Oh, yeah, you're wild. Sure. Yeah, let's aim for Emma Thomas. (laughs) Heck yeah. I love that. Where would you like, um, where would you like people to follow you online?
2: Um, I have Instagram. I have Twitter. They're both at Michael the And. Um, if you guys want to follow me on Spotify as well, I'd really appreciate that too.
1: Yeah, you should definitely follow him on Spotify. Thank you so much for being on, Michael. I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks for having me. This was really fun.
1: This was super fun. It was like a it was like a deep dive catch up where uh, I got to do all the asking of questions, which is my favorite. So thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> I'll talk
0: to you soon. Have a good quarantine. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of BTS Podcast. Please be sure to follow BTS Podcast across social media platforms. Feel free to follow me also. There are links in the description of this episode. If you just look up my name, L-Y-N-A-E, Cook, you will find me pretty easily. And then BTS is BTS the Podcast across social platforms. I really appreciate you listening. Please also follow Michael. Check out his music. I love it. It's great. And please do follow him across social media platforms. He is at Michael Badal. And thank you so much for listening. I super appreciate it. As mentioned before, please do subscribe, rate, review. It helps the podcast a lot. And It helps with sponsorships. I have been very mediocre at reaching out for sponsorships. It feels a little tone-deaf at the moment, but obviously when the timing is right, I would love to have better numbers to show. Right now, there are quite a few listeners, but more is always better because podcasts are growing and... Uh, It's very easy to get lost in the shuffle. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you liked any of Mike's advice, please do share it. I'd love to know what you liked about it. And uh, tag me, him, the podcast, whatever in the content so we can see what you enjoyed. Thanks. Have a great day. Stay safe.